Hello, welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mjab. Another Friday, another delight. I am always excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your support, your love, and your kindness. Each time you support I Am The Code, you're elevating young women and girls globally, and we do appreciate your support. I was just saying the other day that Nazir's podcast is absolutely amazing. I don't think people have heard about a UK prosecutor before. He loves supporting young women and girls and boys. I was so impressed with the way he was speaking. He believes that we must protect these vulnerable populations. I was just really impressed. Well, I hope you're doing well. We are celebrating a new month, May. And our heart goes to our friends from India. It's really difficult. When I look at the news right now, it's absolutely heartbreaking what is happening in that country. Our women and girls are suffering and we must really support them and look after them. When we say we are in this together, we really need to mean this. We must be together and helping India, making sure that people are living or even living this earth and dying with dignity and pride as well. What COVID-19 have done is to change lives. COVID-19 has changed lives in so many ways, made us think, but also I think made us re-evaluate who we are, why we're here, what we're doing. And I think it's time for us to sit down and have a think, know our worth, invest into ourselves, and do the inventory of our lives and our relationships absolutely crucial. I've been talking to my dear friend, Lerato Mbele, who is joining me in the podcast shortly. She is a journalist from South Africa, somebody I've been following for so many years. Lerato is eloquent, beautiful, smart, intelligent, and wise. I love her. And usually she interviews celebrities and big leaders. She interviews Kofi Annan and Grasa Michelle and so many people. But this time, I wanted to interview her so she can share her life journey, why did she become a journalist, and at the same time, just share her wisdom with us. I really hope you enjoy my conversation. I will see you on the other side. Lerato, how are you? I can't believe you are coming on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I am so honored, Lady Mariam, and I'm very well today. It's a Friday, Friday, so hey-ho. Something to be celebrated. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just want to say, how are you doing? There are a couple of stuff I think you've done, I think, for me that you probably may not notice. I remember meeting you a long time ago. This is, I was like probably in 2012, I was really being invited by CNN. And I remember listening to you and seeing you on TV, the way you're you were so professional and really telling the African story. I said, finally, someone understands that you were doing this, interviewing people and big leaders. Yeah. And I just, I was so impressed. And then I think that the second thing I, I really love about you is you are always championing other women, always highlighting African stories, investment. And for me, as a young woman growing up in the continent at that time, I was really impressed. and But at the same time, I felt safe. I felt that someone is going out there using you know, a global platform to interview so professionally. I saw you at Davos. I saw you at the World Bank and where you sit and really interview leaders. I just want to say this for you to know that 
you have played a massive role in my life personally and in the life of so many African people who are right now in the creative industry. So, Lea Tombele, thank you so much for joining the I Am The Code podcast. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your very kind and generous introduction. And we've been inspired by women like you in STEM and science, passionate Africans, able women, champions of a brave new world where we all can share the spoils where the sun shines on everyone. You are that ray of sunshine. And thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming. I heard you are in South Africa now. Where are you? Are you in South Africa? I am. I am in South Africa. I am at home. I'm with family. South Africa obviously has experienced some of the worst elements of the COVID-19 pandemic by way of infection rates, deaths, and a very slow, sometimes even confused vaccine rollout strategy and plan. And because of that, it's been difficult to move out of South Africa. Not impossible, just difficult. And so I think Many South Africans have uh, heeded the call of the South African president, which is to stay home if you can, to social distance, to travel within the borders of the country, to limit your inter-country international travel, to sanitize and to try to stay healthy. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I am living that work from home, social distance life right now. It's absolutely beautiful that you just said that. One of the things I was reading just about all the work you've done, it's just amazing. But how was COVID? Because you travel quite a lot and go and meet leaders and interview them. How was COVID? And if I just may ask another question, what was the greatest lesson you've learned during this time? In a word, COVID has been devastating. And yet at the same time, it's been really an illuminating period of my life. So devastating because obviously myself and our team have been grounded for a long time. We couldn't travel. And the essence of the television show that we host and that I host and produce requires that I travel extensively around the African continent. So up until March of 2020, I was living a life where three weeks of a month, I was away from home on assignment, traveling either in West Africa, East Africa, Europe, the United States, as you say, meeting African leaders game changers, entrepreneurs, the movers and shakers, and trying to tell this African story. And that's really a lot to do with the BBC's mandate, which is to live the story. It's the tagline, live the story. And so the BBC approach to business journalism is be on the factory floor, be in the field of the farm, be in the boardroom. Don't talk to somebody about the ideas in their heads. Explore those ideas in the visual, the tangible, and the palpable. And so for the last eight or nine years, my life has really been nomadic and traveling. March 2020 put an end to that. And so we had to improvise and find different ways of bringing creative content onto the television screen. What it meant is I started reporting a lot about business and coping mechanisms and survival strategies for the business and entrepreneurial community in a COVID world in Southern Africa. So it became a little bit too parochial and took away a little bit of the essence of the pan-Africanism of the work that I do. And after a while, it also started to be frustrating because there's only so many themes you can tease out economically and business-wise in a COVID Mm. world. So many businesses have been destroyed. 
So many people have lost their jobs. Employees have been furloughed and asked to stay home without pay. Businesses are working. Those that are functioning are working below capacity, Mm -hmm. having to limit the size of people who can come into their stores and buy transacts in restaurants. There have also been many policies and regulations in South Africa that were introduced as a way to curb the virus, the spread of the virus, and then repealed quickly because of the social impact. So if I think about it, restaurants are not allowed to have people coming to dine inside, which meant that many restaurants saw their margins dwindling and couldn't survive with less foot traffic. And so those restaurants would close, and ultimately if a restaurant closes, the waiters, the chefs, the cooks, the cleaning staff lose their jobs. And so with that social impact, the government quickly rolls back on its policy and says, okay, the restaurant can open, but only with 35% or 50% capacity, which is a small respite, but isn't sufficient for a business to operate on the turnovers that it's used to, to pay the salaries that it can. And so many people really haven't survived the crisis, and it's been really heart-wrenching to witness that. So journalistically, it's also meant the array of stories that you can tell and experiences you can have started to be very limited. So when I say devastating, devastating technically, logistically, creatively, and materially in terms of people's well-being and the survival of many businesses. So that's been really hard to watch. Illuminating, though, because it is for the first time in a long time, in almost a decade, that I've been able to spend time with my family Mm. properly, that I've been able to be present at birthdays Mm -hmm. and whatever small milestones are being celebrated. And in February of 2021, my mother, who's 72 years old, was having the first of her knee replacement surgeries. She was feeling very vulnerable, very tepid, very scared. And whereas in the past, I would have had to subcontract the nursing. I would have had to say, okay, I'll take you to hospital, but I'll then have to ask my siblings to help or hire a nurse to look after her. This time, I was with her from the day I drove her to the hospital to the day I picked her up to every single day of treating her, doing her exercises with her, administering her medication, cooking every meal for her, taking her to every physiotherapy appointment. And her last appointment is is two weeks from now where she's going to be given the all clear, we believe, to get back into the game, drive, go back to gym, etc. So her entire treatment process, I've been here, which is something I've never been able to do. And to that extent, what COVID has done in terms of center me, ground me, bring me back to what's important, family, for that I'm grateful. That's so amazing. We've been so busy going around, flying, business class, but we actually forgot who we were. It's really fascinating you said that. So what was the greatest lesson you learned then? Was it like stillness or was it like really family? What was it? I love what you've just said. So I've always had a very strong family bond and network. Even though I was traveling extensively, my colleagues will tell you, Lerato doesn't miss a birthday. Lerato doesn't work on her birthdays. Lerato doesn't miss certain important family times, Christmases, etc. However, Lerato and journalists in general often have to sacrifice a lot in the pursuit of good stories, in the pursuit of good journalism. Like I say, there are many christenings, weddings, even funerals, I couldn't attend and support friends and family and extended family at their time of need. So to that end, 
COVID-19 has helped to just level that playing field a little bit and remind us what matters, which is family bonds, family unity. So it's merely reinforced it, but it's a value system I already had imbibed, just not to the extent that I wanted to. But I love the word you've used, stillness. I have meditated so much over the last year. I have prayed to God so much, not for health or in a panic about the the pandemic, but just in gratitude to wake up every morning and know I'm okay, to watch my mother going into hospital to have knee replacement surgery and pass two COVID tests in that process. We've heard about so much death in our family network, friends, community, neighbors. So there's been so much horror. And yet in my life personally, There's been so much beauty and I found myself having to just express gratitude so much. No, it's really fascinating. One of the things that people may not know about you is that you have worked so hard to be where you are today. I remember, like I said, seeing you in, in the year 2000, a long time ago. Maybe 20 years ago. I'm yes. just counting. Wow. Well, we're I, not young. <laughs> we're not young. But I remember seeing you. But I think we people don't know how hard you work to be where you are. Would you mind just telling the girls we work with, with the I Am The Code podcast, it's all about <laughs> young women and girls. How did your childhood look like? Where did you grow up in South Africa? I'll start with the first, and then I'll come to the childhood. You'll, you must remind me if I start to waffle a little bit. So I remember being interviewed for a profile interview for a really beautiful publication called Destiny Magazine. It's a magazine that celebrates women and their accomplishments. And I was their cover personality. And I remember on the cover, beautiful picture, one of the best pictures I've ever taken. Mm. The inscription that went with my cover title said something like, Leratum Bele on success sacrifice and never accepting no. And so inside the magazine itself, the article, the first line of the article said, Lerato Mbele has crawled her way to the top. And I remember being struck by the word crawl because I'd never fashioned my career like that. I'd never looked at myself like somebody who'd really worked hard on my knees, grinded. But when I thought about it, it was true. It was an accurate reflection because what I had done is I'd been very deliberate about my career. So I started off as a cub reporter, intern even, at the South African National Broadcaster. And at the time, I was just a young girl with heady dreams. I didn't even want to be a journalist. I was just trying it out to see if it was a fit for somebody like me who was coming out of university with an honors degree in international relations. So I just wanted to see how far the knowledge that I had or had acquired could take me in a media setting. But my dream was really to be a diplomat, but I wasn't quite qualified for that yet. I then worked in newsrooms and radio as a producer and found it very exciting, especially current affairs, not breaking news, but current affairs, the analysis, the story behind the story, the understanding, the politics, the why, the economic and the social impact. I found that really riveting. So I thought, okay, I might have a career here. I was doing really well as this intern that I was offered a job and I became a producer and shadowed some really dynamic women in the newsroom. Karima Brown, who is a renowned South African um, journalist, unfortunately, she passed away a month ago due to COVID-19. It was really sad for me because she coached me and she was my line manager. Sue Valentine was her boss and Sue Valentine also took my hand and held me and said, give this young girl support. If she's got ideas, let's help her refine those ideas and let's give them some impetus. So I worked in that environment with that kind of support from women editors and I found my voice, as it were, on radio. 
Very soon thereafter, their boss, who was the director of news and current affairs, said, I think that young one, she's got something in her. I think we should move her over from radio to television. We think she's feisty, she's got personality, and she's hungry for success. Clearly, she's ambitious. So let's bring her this side. I was also offered a lot of support from male editors this time around. People bash men a lot, but there are many he for she's in this world. Mm. So it was still a really supportive, encouraging environment. But the men had less empathy than the women. So the women editors who'd nurtured me in radio, they would work with me. They would help me figure out the syntax of a sentence, help me smooth out the sound in a radio package, help me identify how to craft a package with the right sound, the right sound bite, the right scripting to bring out the emotion in the piece, all of those things. The men didn't have that kind of patience. You had to literally run with it. But if you did well, they would open the doors for you. So what the television side of the business taught me was to trust my judgment, to trust my instinct, and to really trust myself and not constantly look to a mother hen to get their approval. I need to trust myself. Soon thereafter, I was given my own show, but not a prominent channel. At the time, it was called SABC Africa. And it's important what I'm saying to you. It wasn't a prominent channel compared to the three domestic channels that had huge viewership numbers. But it was the SABC springboard into the rest of the African continent. And that's where I wanted to be. People said, no, but you could be famous by being on SABC3. But no, I was being put on SABC Africa, and I thought that was the right thing for me because it would feed my passion for international relations. It would feed my curiosity about the African continent, and it would offer me opportunities to learn about an African continent that I'd only read about in books, in the books of Ngugi Wationgo, Chinyo Achebe, Nawal El-Sadawi, who also just recently died, and many other authors like that. And I wanted to be in this zone because I recognized that I was still learning and yearning for more knowledge. At SABC Africa, I got my own show, which had never been heard of, of somebody who literally two years before had been an intern, and mm. now here she is hosting her show. But because there were no resources on this channel, I literally had to write the show, conceptualize it, write it, work with the video editors frame by frame to find the visuals that match, do the research, work with the archivists. Wow present it. I was literally a one-man band. Amazing. <laughs> you know, people but, don't know about this. <laughs> I was a one-man band. And when you're told there's no resources, that means if they've given you a production assistant and a video editor to work with, that's it. Make do with that team. That's it. So it really forces you to pull your creativity. So remember, I come in there not with a degree in journalism, but with a degree in political science and international relations. I'm just trying this journalism thing out at the time. So for it to be beautiful television, I have to find deep in the repository of my soul creativity that I didn't know I had to make pictures tell a story, to give that those thousand words an element of emotiveness, beauty. And so I was learning things that no university could have taught me, which was how to see things from the prism of a lens, literally now, not metaphorically. You've got to see things the way a camera would see them. You've got to identify beauty in a frame. You've got to identify emotion in a smile or in the eyes. You've got to learn how to do this thing and capture those shots. And you've got to instruct 
your cameraman to do that for you. In other words, you've got to give briefs that are so clear about what you're trying to pull out. So I learned everything about being a television writer, producer, camera lady, researcher in the early years. And I saw it as a very important part of cultivating the journalist I wanted to be in the future. I wasn't there yet, but I knew one day I'd get there. So many years passed. There were different things I did in the media. I left the media briefly to go and try my hand at something else, which was working in an NGO and a think tank and advising foreign policy, working for the South African Institute of International Affairs. I even did my master's during the interim. But when I came back into the media, I was ready. I was ready mm. for the big time. And I wasn't afraid to say I'm ready for the big time. And serendipity is such that, Mariam, if you wish it, if you will it, if you pray about it, the universe aligns. And I just got a call from outside of the media saying, we've crafted a whole TV show. It's going to be made for you. So you tell us what you want out of it, and we're going to make it happen. And this time you're going to get producer, editor, and you're going to get the paycheck to match. And so literally fast forward... Six, seven years after starting as a cub reporter, doing it for a few years, leaving for a couple of years, I came back to the big league and started to ride the crest of that wave. But even so, Mariam, I did the news at 10 with Leraton Bella on SABC3. I, I became that. a recognized figure in South Africa. My face was on billboards from the airport to the highway. It was really a taste of what fame was. It was thrilling, but it was scary. Because I felt like there was quite a bit of intrusion in my personal space. I would be in a shopping center and people Everybody would recognize me and people would watch what I'm putting in my grocery cart. And people would comment on the fact that, wow, I'm so tiny. And they thought I was so big on TV, but I'm so short. And, <laughs> Those and are the high daily, chairs. <laughs> and these are daily occurrences, but an appreciation of my work from the public. But even though I had that experience, I knew I wanted something more. And what was that more? I remember my family asking, and I said, I want an international profile. I don't want a domestic profile. I want the world to hear and see what I have to say. And so the universe aligned, it conspired. I got approached by CNBC Africa. And what CNBC Africa did for me was introduce me to something else, a different genre, business and economics journalism. And it gave me huge exposure into the pan-African market properly this time. So this time it was really meeting the men and the women shaping this new Africa we talk about. Aleko Dangote, Tony Elumelu, Mariam Jam, Kofi Annan, President Paul Kagame. I now got to sit in some of those rooms and speak to some of these leaders and ask them. But let me tell you, you were asking questions with eloquence because we had so many journalists, but I think the way you were asking these questions, that's what I said to young people all the time, you did your homework. And I remember sitting at Davos and hearing your voice. I don't know if someone told you about this before, but there is this eloquence and this clarity in the way you speak and you ask questions. It's oh, wow. so so amazing. So I want to ask you, you know, when you really have this drive to go and do all of this, where did this come from? Was it in your childhood? How, how did it come about? Because I really okay. saw the drive. I am a Zulu girl and we all know the myths and the mysteries of what it is to be Zulu. But it is people proud of their heritage, their culture. They're a tour de force. Mm -hmm. And Zulu women are quiet but stern. I come from a family where here... You could speak your mind 
That was then passed on to my mother, who is the daughter of Jacobeth. And in her own way, my mother showed an incredible amount of resilience in the face of so much resistance in an apartheid system, but also in a very difficult marriage. Uh, my parents got divorced, but really my mother had to champion a lot. And one of the things my mother said, I remember to my father, I remember this crystal clear, is that my daughter is going to have opportunities I never had. And she will have them for as long as I'm breathing and I will die trying. This little girl is never going to have the life I had, not in terms of a political system defining what quality of education she could have, not in terms of her husband telling her what she can or she cannot do, and not in terms of race saying because she's black, she's limited to a life of X, Y, and Z. My daughter will never, ever be defined by those systemic barriers. And so in the midst of apartheid, my mother made sure she sent me to a Catholic convent and then to St. Mary's school. She paid for it herself. She encouraged me to join the Toastmasters and debating societies. Mm -hmm. She bought me as many books as she could for me to read. When I didn't agree with something, she said, you can debate it. You can raise your displeasure. You don't have to be rude, but you can say what you feel. Mm. There's no silencing of a child here. And when you get to university, you study what you want to study, what fuels your passion. I am your mother, and it's going to be my responsibility to make sure it happens for you. Yours is to make sure you get the grades, and I will make sure that everything else is done. And from those women and many men along the way, I knew that I was the only hindrance to my purpose and that they were rooting for me. I wasn't defined by the system. I lived 17 years under apartheid in South Africa. It didn't matter what the limitations of income were. My parents, particularly my mother, would make sure they found the money to give me the opportunities I needed. And that included extramural activities like learning how to play the piano and doing ballet. I did all of those as a black child in racist South Africa. Wow. With that wind beneath my wings, Really, I owed it to my family, I owed it to my parents, I owed it to my grandmother and my mother to make sure that when I found what fits me, give it the very best that I can and do the best with what I have. But more than that, I knew that Africa was magical. I knew it. I read it in the books that I read. And I wanted people to see it for what I saw it as, my motherland my heritage, my culture, and to be respected. I was done. I was tired reading Shakespeare, Thomas Hardy, Tennyson, and others, and being told, <laughs> this is a culture I must aspire to. It's a culture I can respect and work within, but my culture also deserved its place in the sun. And with those definitions, I decided my career was going to be in Africa, for Africa, in international relations, maybe in the media, and as a woman, I was going to succeed. 
Wow. I want to see your mom, by the way, one day. I wish her all the <laughs> best. And I think, I mean, like, seriously, she's a lioness. I have seen this in you. Sometimes I notice people, I observe women when they are at the global yeah. stage. I've seen you so many times in global stage. I can definitely see this pride, this confidence in you, where you actually really you stood up, like, so tall. But is it why you have interviewed so many women leaders and men, of course, but who stood out for you? Mm. Who stood out in your interviews? And I'm sure you have memories of people who really stood out? There are so many. But I think the first big interview I ever had in my life was with the late Prime Minister and the first female Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazia Bhutto. She granted me an interview. I was so intimidated, but I was determined to go there. She was, for me at the time, an idol. She was so smart, Mariam. Her mind was computing as it were. When she spoke, you could literally see her tying through all the dots and connecting them. It was impressive to watch. She was so eloquent. It was a marvel to listen to her. She was dignified, but you could see there was something sharp about her. She, if you asked a question that was stupid, there's a way she looked at you without saying, <laughs> that's really dumb. That's but, like Lerato. But it was for you to check yourself right now, to just say to yourself, could I have phrased that differently? And I just looked at her and I thought, you know, I want to be this sort of woman. I want to be beautiful, articulate, elegant. I want to be clear in my purpose, my vision. And I want to handle myself with dignity and decorum. And being in a room with that woman for an hour, it really set the tone for me. I then said, but who in Africa is like that? I have to meet them. And there she was, Grasa Michelle, exactly the same. Feisty. Oh, our mama. That's our mama. I saw the interview with you and her. Clear, dignified, but she exuded the same qualities. She can express herself. She's clear about what she needs to say. She's strong-willed. Her voice rises when she's excitable. It has depth. When she's serious, it's stern. But she'll never humiliate you because that's not her business. True. And I loved, and I loved that about her because it is all about being able to stand your ground, stern and firm, without having to put somebody else down. And so there have been many of those women who keep on inspiring me, challenging me, and making me realize I must never ever rest on my laurels and think I've arrived. This is a journey, it's a marathon, and there's still huge milestones. But let me also give credit to the young lionesses, mm. the Ndidi Nunelis of this world. She started the Sahel Group. She is an economist, but somebody who is very passionate about um, Africa feeding itself and supporting agricultural manufacturing businesses. She moved from the United States where she was working as a consultant, I think, I stand corrected, at McKinsey, and came to start this business with her husband in her home country of Nigeria, and she's still at it. Those are women who are going to say, the Africa we want to see, we have to be the custodians of that change. Mm. And she's doing it. And interviewing somebody like Ndidi just says to me, it can be done. And I look at her and I say to myself, here is a woman who 12 years ago was in a corporate job in the UK. Mm. Mm -hmm. But when she got tired of that, of building other people's castles, she said, I want to build my own. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to bring people along with me. And I know that Africans love their music. They love their film. Mm -hmm. They love their entertainment. How can we amplify that? Yes. How can we elevate that? And here she is, yes, with a whole series of other people, 
but it's because of them that a lot of Nollywood content is now sitting at Netflix, that the quality of Nollywood movies is now international and global standard. I look mm. at a woman like that and I think, my goodness. And so there's a wealth of young talent, up and coming talent, women that are going to change this world for us. And I want to be there with them as they embark on that change. I want to tell those stories on their behalf. I want to showcase their talents and I'm going to do it. This is why I wanted to have you on the podcast because I've seen this, right? Because there are so many women out there, but you champion other women. You have used your privilege at the BBC and everywhere you are yeah. to go and talk on behalf of us young people. Because without yeah. you, we see there are some people in Africa that they have, credi- they have credibility, they've got integrity. I always wanted to be interviewed by Lerato Mbele, by the way, just to Thanks. let you know. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think what is beautiful about you, Lerato, is that the clarity in the way you do things. You don't just promise and under-deliver, but you really do the work. I've seen that. Let me ask you a little bit about where that came from. That came from, I think, from learning about leadership and policy, the intersection between leadership and policy. Why do you think this matters? Because you are only not showing leadership, but also you are showing compassion, empathy, kindness, putting us out there, using your power, your voice, your amazing, beautiful, clarity voice to give us. Why do you think it's important to have integrity and humility in whatever we're doing? We all know I'm a South African born and raised. And we know that South Africa's had a really difficult history with institutionalized racism, legalized racism called apartheid. We are still working through that trauma. We are still working through the inequalities that stem from there. We know the South African story. I don't have to repeat it here. But because we've had that kind of a history, South Africa, for all its sins, is a country that honors quality, humanity, humility, and respect in its social codes. Because we come from a past where people's humanity was always denigrated, so It's an unwritten rule in South Africa that you have to respect. Basic respect is the hallmark and the bedrock of a society. It's embedded in South Africa. If you just walked into a room, if you just walked into a shop, a store to buy your bread and you didn't greet the security guard, it's considered rude. And you didn't greet the cleaning lady, it's considered rude. And you don't say to the woman at the cash register, good morning, it's considered rude. And it doesn't matter your social position. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter where you went to school. Just some basic rules of social engagement written into the social codes. And we can say a lot of things about South Africa, but on that one, I love my country for it. So it's really hard not to have humility and empathy when you grow up in an environment that demands of you just some basic aspects of decent behavior. So I had no choice, Mariam, but to try and live in a truth that's predicated on empathy and kindness because I was raised that way. I was literally raised that way. There are consequences to behaviors that are not predicated on kindness. In everything, I say to myself, put myself in the other person's shoes. Mm. If this was me on the receiving end, how would I like to receive it? And if somebody barking at me, belittling me, judging me is not how I would want to receive it, then I am not going to do that to anybody else, even if I feel strongly about it. 
Wow. This is so important what you're saying, because the young girls, we've been working with refugee girls and so many girls now. We have 27,000 girls into the program. We're in 69 mm -hmm. countries and they're listening yes. to the, the girls are listening to people like you. It's so fascinating what you just said. I agree with you because for me, it is so time that we elevate humanity. Absolutely crucial, especially as you said at the beginning with COVID-19, we have been through a lot, all of us. We've been through a lot. So it's really important. But let me ask you now, as I said, the podcast is about you. Your, we celebrate you in Africa. We do. I personally do. Because I think you're amazing. You. You've received a lot of many accolades and you sat and dined with so many people. And I read one of the things that you were nominated in the Paulist in opera as women rocking the world. <laughs> what do you advise to young yeah. women right now who are receiving accolades? But you, even when you receive accolades, you always humble, you know, about it. But how was it for you to receive these accolades? Mm -hmm. you, you and I, when we started, we didn't have Vogue magazine or all this magazine featuring us. We had to work hard for people to actually understand now system. What would you say to these young people today and how was it for you to have to receive all these yeah. accolades and how do you feel about it? How your mom yeah. feels about it actually? Uh, <laughs> I think they're her accolades. They're definitely not mine because uh, I don't take a lot of things to heart. But it is heartwarming to be recognized. Then you know that you're on a good path or you're doing something that's relevant. And I think every now and again, you need a reminder, a validation. Everybody needs validation. And so for me, it was always an affirmation of what I'm doing. It just gave credence to a lot of the compliments that I'd heard that I was on the right path. However, I've only ever seen my job as just that, Mariam, as a job. It's not a lifestyle. It doesn't define who I am at the core of me. It simply outlines my interests. It's a pillar of my life. It is not my life. I still come into my house and I still wash dishes if I need to. And I still scrub the floors if I've messed up. And I still do the things I must do. I still take out the garbage. So people must be very careful not to let their careers define their personalities, define their persons. It's a persona. It's a dimension of your life. It's not your entire life. So that's a very important thing. But you don't work hard for people not to applaud. You don't work hard to not be, don't work hard for people not to say, you've touched my life. And everything that you do, Look for the purpose. Remember why? It's because I felt a raw deal in terms of how it was covered. I felt affronted that African people were being misrepresented. And I felt that we had so much to contribute to global civilization. And I wanted my life's work to show that. I'm still doing that. There's still a lot to do. It's what I want to do. It's my why every single day. And if that requires that on a Monday, I'm in a refugee camp, to tell the why, I will do it. On a Tuesday, in a, on a private jet, I will do it. And on a Wednesday, I'm on a factory floor, I will do it. And on a Thursday, I'm, you know, I am helping weeding gardens or tilling the land, I will do it. And then go to the fashion show and wear beautiful Ankaras made in Africa. I will do all of it for as long as it keeps on answering my question, why? Africa deserves its place in the sun. So if you cannot remember your why and you get caught up in this road fame and champagne and designer labels, when you're no longer relevant, it's going to hit you really hard because anybody can be famous. They are center, the why of why you believe what you do. So be authentic and remember who you are. And yes, 
receive the validation but don't let this thing wow. define this uh, young girls and boys i hope you're listening to this because it's a golden advice let me ask you two more questions we talked about your beautiful mother wise strong dignified mm-hmm. work so hard to be where you yes. are today and then as i said we african women are proud of who you are and you are a pride of africa but apart from your mother who else mm-hmm. mentored you who else grounded you the way you are today this wisdom you have this oratory and this clarity the way you speak uh, who 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 is your mentor i have so many i think i get mentored by everyone so i can't think of anyone personally i've been mentored on the job by editors rob stevenson mary wilkin colleagues like bola moshuru i've had constant support from a whole ecosystem of people who just wanted me to do well so i think I'm a child really of the village. They say in Africa it takes a village mm. to raise a child. And in my case it's true. The bishop's wife put her hands over me on my very first day of working, my very first mm-hmm. job. I remember it. The Sunday before I went to work on the Monday, the bishop to pray that my journey in my career would be successful. And I look at my journey now 20 years later and I say that was a very important thing that happened to me that Sunday. Somebody who just wanted to say we're going to ask God above to be with you. The people I've worked with, those people have contributed something in my life. Humanity is living out your truth, your purpose, giving the very best that you can and making sure that in your success, however you define success, other people can eat at that table too. Not people applauding you, but people sharing with you. You always talk about integrity and holding your head high. and making sure that no matter what you do you stay being yourself being authentic mm-hmm. what advice do you have to young women and girls mm-hmm. listening to this podcast today who are suffering they're living in very difficult places mm-hmm. across south africa across kenya all across the world by the way we're in 69 mm-hmm. countries now what is your mm-hmm. advice for these young girls and and how can they continue dreaming and being themselves somebody once said that when a man and a woman come together to make a baby it's a very complicated biological scientific process but ultimately you are the one that won that lottery that means you have a role that means you have a purpose that means your life has a place in this world so your dreams no matter how far fetched they may seem they are valid they are your dreams it's not for me to approve of them it's not for mariam jump to approve of them it's for you to say i made it this far and i'm going to do the very best with what i have and i think that needs to be your truth whatever is burning deeply inside of you whatever you keep dreaming about and dreaming about season after season whatever you believe you were brought to this life to do there's nothing less and there's nothing more it could be as simple as saying my destiny is to be a good mother to my children then live out that truth your destiny could be president of a nation then be like kamala harris it might be being the very best broadcaster in the world then be christian amampour it might be you want to be a doctor then go for it you know what burns in your belly intuitive voice you have to listen to because if you made it this far it's because there was a place for you in this life and nobody must invalidate that for you. Lerato, I want to say something for you to know this. 
you have mentored me indirectly. I am so honored, or really, I am really honored to have you on this podcast because I know that you're going to change the life of so many women and girls out there. I want to say this very clearly on behalf of myself and Africa, the entire continent. We are really grateful. We are grateful for your authenticity, the work you've done. And I wanted to invite you personally to just show you how we care about you because we have been there. I've been around for nearly 25 years now in this business and you're my elder. But I want to just share with you that we care about you and we really appreciate you. So on behalf of Africa and myself and all the girls listening to this podcast, Lera Tombele, thank you so much for coming on the I Am The Code podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure, my honor. That was a beautiful conversation. What a smart woman. I've been always saying that young girls growing up across the world need more than just academic competencies. You can just see it on Lera too. We need to include them in global conversations from journalism to working in tech sectors, becoming CEOs, you just name it, absolutely. We also need to help them look into the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I personally believe when you invest in women and girls now, in 2021, you will absolutely see your return in 2030, 10 years from now. So start investing now, investing into our girls, and you will see your return. We are organizing virtual clubs at the moment, so join us for free. You can come and learn how to code, win a prize, learn about the United Nations Global Goals, just name it. So I invite you to join us. You will have fun. <laughs> you have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are launching the virtual clubs, as I said. We only have 100 spaces left. So rush very quickly and book your space. So it's Monday the 10th and uh, we are looking forward to having you with us. We're a very small team at I Am The Code dedicated to making the world a better place by creating inspiring content for people who want to be better and do better. Please join us. We love your feedback. We must start elevating humanity. Our team this season is elevating humanity. I am sure you are elevating humanity. It's so important that we do that together. Remember to donate to I Am The Code. Each time you donate to I Am The Code, we are supporting young women and girls. We're buying them computers, helping them connect, infrastructure, get them masks, you just name it. Thank you for being here. Come and learn how to code. You only have a few days left. Thank you for being my friend and for listening to us every Friday. Thank you and goodbye.